that I'm not going to speak too much to you about rage because I shall never stop once I start. A reading life, a writing life, with writer and teacher Sally Bailey. I have been reading Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights, which my students tell me they have not read, and I feel sorry for them. I feel very sorry. Very sorry for them. See, I stumble over the word sorry because I can barely believe they have not read Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, published in 1847. It must have caused a great hullabaloo when first it was seen and heard. All that rage. It is a novel about rage, rage, rage. But I'm not going to speak too much to you about rage because I shall never stop once I start. Instead, I want to think about Mr. Lockwood's strange dream. Mr. Lockwood... He is the poor, benighted wretch who unfortunately decides to spend the night at Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights, set in West Yorkshire. I imagine a recreation of the house where Emily Bronte grew up with her family. Her father was a minister of the church, a preaching man, a preaching man. But I want to tell you of Mr. Lockwood and his strange dream. Mr. Lockwood who stumbles across Wuthering Heights. One snowy night. One snowy afternoon in winter. What an unfortunate wretch he is. He comes across a house filled with rage. To the rafters, to the beams. Filled with rage. A house plunged deep inside a torrent, a tumultuous torrent of the past. You see, it is history that haunts Wuthering Heights, this strange gothic novel of fear and rage and revenge. It is a revenge drama. It is much like those Jacobean revenge tragedies, Hamlet. The Duchess of Malfi. Revenge, revenge, sweet, sweet revenge. And even your dreams, even your dreams can be avenging spectres. And I want to tell you about Mr. Lockwood's dream, the poor benighted lodger who spends the night in Wuthering Heights, in Cathy. Earnshaw's bedroom. Kathy, Kathy, beloved of Heathcliff. Kathy and Heathcliff. Kathy and Heathcliff. Great lovers. Great haters. Children in the end. Whose lives were blighted by the dark shadows of the past.
tragedy. Tragedy. Because their lives never quite coalesced in the way they wish them to. Two coerval souls that never quite meet. It is the stuff of tragedy. And Mr. Lockwood, he has walked right into it. Right into the middle of the aftermath of those two souls split apart as children. And so I will tell you this, I will tell you this of Mr. Lockwood's strange dream as a way of thinking about how we as writers are all haunted by our dreams. Mr. Lockwood is quite frighted out of his wits. I wonder he can sleep at all in Wuthering Heights. Not even one night of sweet dreams. You see, he can't, he doesn't, he can't. Or rather, he dreams a very strange dream because dreams are not always restful, I find. They carry you places, places away, away, away. And you do not know, you do not know where it is you go. In his dream, Mr. Lockwood is carried to the local chapel. He knows the chapel. He recognises it partly because he has passed it once or twice on walks and it lies in a hollow a hollow between two hills near a swamp filled with peaty moisture. Touch it, touch the moisture, put your hand down and touch the peaty, cold, dark, wet water. And so you see, we are going down, we are going down, down into Mr. Lockwood's dream. Will you follow me? Will you follow me there? Are you brave enough to follow me there? It is a dream which begins with that poor frightened lodger, Mr. Lockwood, tramping through the snow with Joseph, the surly servant of Wuthering Heights, who curses all day and night. The devil, the devil, the devil, he says. The devil will get you in a thick Yorkshire accent. Joseph, the surly servant, is our guide. Joseph, who constantly reproaches Mr. Lockwood, who is also I. I. He speaks to us as I, Mr. Lockwood. And Joseph is reprimanding Mr. Lockwood for his failure to bring a pilgrim's staff on this strange walk through the snowy hills. For Joseph, for Joseph, you see, every moment of life must be in service to the Christian journey. And without his staff, Mr. Lockwood, who is now me, who is now you, who is now me, the author will never enter the kingdom of heaven, you see. We'll never get into the house without one, without your staff, your pilgrim staff. Where is it? Rap, rap, rap. 
Where is it? asks Joseph, the surly servant. Where is it? Where the devil is your staff? And people say, writers say, successful writers, writers who have been about the world, that you should never do what I am doing, what Emily Bronte did, which is write up your dreams. But Emily did. And many others did. Many others. Women. Many women. Women live inside their dreams, you see, because there is never enough time in the day to remain undisturbed. And even as I speak to you now, even as I speak to you now, I am wondering when that door will fling open, when that window will bang with the wind, when someone will come rat-a-tat-tatting at my door with their staff to pull me out of this, my writing dream. How long will it be before I am disturbed? Always there is the washing to do, or the floor to be scrubbed, or the dogs to be let out, or the husband to be placated. His stomach, his mood, his attitude to life, which is disappointing and depressing. Depressing. And so I lean in. So I lean in to say that word depressing because I want you to hear it. Because he has not achieved that great final sermon, the husband, your husband. The world has not received him in the way it might have. If only, if only, if only, my dear, if only, if only, if only, my dear, moans the disappointed husband. I'm sure you have one somewhere. If only, if only, if only. And if it isn't the husband disturbing you, then it is the parent, the elderly parent. Hello, dear. Hello, dear. I say, would you mind terribly, dear? Says the elderly parent. All the children. Mummy, 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 mummy. So women. So women. Writers, writers and women. Women and writers. Can only make things happen. In their dreams. Remember Alice, remember Emily, remember Charlotte, remember the poet called Sylvia with the German name, last name Plath, 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 who drew much of her material from tramping around her dreams. Tramp, tramp, tramp. Because all writers are tramps in the end. All writers are homeless, all real writers anyway. And so Sylvia, 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 which means of the woods, Sylvian of the woods, of the trees, spent much of her time tramping around her dreams, a Germanic forest full of Habsburg kings and queens, the Germans, the German Empire, she dreamed back to the German Kings and queens taking their place among the pine trees in the snowy clearing. Sylvia, the poet, 
scooping up the full effects of the light on snow as you see in those famous paintings, the famous paintings by Caspar David Frederick, pronounced with a German accent. Those paintings where moonlight falls through the pine trees and causes a show of light and dark, which is all you need to bring in the shadows. And it is the shadows we want. We writers want to live among the shadows. As Prospero wants, as Prospero wants Shakespeare's magician, his magus. Prospero, who wants Ariel, his sprite, to take him to the places in his own mind. He cannot go. So take me. So take me. Take me, my sprite. I was holding my breath, waiting to be disturbed. But they left me alone this time, and so I can continue to dream. For we must dream. We writers, we must dream ourselves into our new ideas as Mr. Lockwood dreams inside Wuthering Heights of that chapel, that chapel on the hill where he would go. Then a new idea flashed upon me. I was not going there. We were journeying to hear the famous Jabez Brandham preach from the text Seventy times seven. And we were to be publicly exposed and excommunicated, says Mr. Lockwood, our narrator in Wuthering Heights, in his trembling, fearful dream. And so you see, we are now back in Mr. Lockwood's dream. It is there I want to go as the writer. I want to be enclosed inside a dream. But perhaps all dreams meet somewhere in the middle and a writer's dream is just a matter of walking about the place, the place, trying to get back inside your house because someone has locked you out. The world, the world has locked you out. The world has locked you out of that dream house, that house you have dreamed of all your life. The house that will fit all your preposterous ideas that come and go, that come and go as you sleep and fitfully wake and sleep and fitfully wake and dream and dream of the self that would write everywhere, everywhere, on every surface she sees, on the window pane where she will write her name, Kathy, Kathy. Kathy, Sally, Sally, Sally. Scribbled across the surface of books, scribbled inside books, scribbled on my bedside cabinet and drawers, scratching out the paint, scratching out what came before removing the surface because the surface is so ugly and the writer wants to repaint and repaint and repaint and go over and over and over what is there because what is there is so 
dull. So very, very dull. So uninspiring. So unrewarding. So tethering. So lowering. So right over it. Right over it. Right over it and untether yourself from somebody else's prescriptions and ideas and subscriptions and rules. The writer, she never wishes to be tethered. No, no. So right over, right over, right over and fly, fly as Ariel flies around the island gathering up mementos for Prospero, his master. The Magus, the magician, gathers up the sights and sounds of the world he, Prospero, cannot see as a human man, as a limited man with a limited imagination. And so you see, like Ariel, I must fly. I must fly and I must build my house, this house, a house for the unruly writer on the other side of the island, where I can fly day and night and day and night into my dreams, those thick blankets, those clouds, those clouds that would hold me, my dream house, my dream house, a house where all the words I write will be kept for posterity and nothing, nothing, nothing will be rubbed out. A house where the very liniments will be made from words. Every line of the house, its carpentry, its planed surfaces, all will fold back upon my words. And you, you will say, this is the writer's ego. Yes, yes it is, of course it is. It is her museum of selfhood. Where she will be buried among her words. And of course, many will be bad. They will be bad words too. Many will be poorly executed, but that is your writing lot. And so what? So what? And people shall come, and people shall stay, and people shall come and sleep in her house as Mr. Lockwood comes to sleep in Wuthering Heights and leans his head against the window pane and continues spelling out her name Catherine Earnshaw Heathcliff Lint till his eyes close and he begins to see a swarm of spectres in the air Letters dancing, letters dancing, the air swarming with Catherine's, Catherine, Catherine, Catherine's, Cathy, 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 Sally, Sally, Sally. Vivid as dark spectres, dark as vivid spectres, for all writers turn into ghosts in this life and the next. We are all ghosts travelling the earth looking for our ghostly counterparts, waving, 
waving at one another, trying to say, Hello, 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 hello. How are you? And where do you go? I go to the chapel. I go to the chapel. For Mr Lockwood, who dreams fitfully inside Wuthering Heights, it is the chapel he goes to. It is the chapel. The house of God. We came to the chapel. I have passed it really in my walks twice or thrice. It lies in a hollow between two hills. An elevated hollow near a swamp whose peaty moisture is said to answer all the purposes of embalming on the few corpses deposited there. Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte And so you see, we tramp about, we tramp about, we writers, looking for our house, looking for our chapel, looking for our place of prayer. Looking for our destination as we flee the sermon delivered by a society who does not wish to host us well. A society so dull, so very, very dull, it cannot hold, it cannot hold the light of the imagination for any of us writers. Artists, fleers, fleers from persecution, the dull, dull blows upon the body of the writer. And so we must leave, we must leave, we must leave in the dark. We must pass through the dark with no flame and no light to help us find our way. And we are punished. We are left alone, crying in the dark like children, and we are turned to sinners, those who tread their own path through the dark snowy hills, as Mr Lockwood does, leaving only the marks of their own boots, and perhaps those of their guide, behind them. Today my guide is Emily Bronte, who was condemned to pinch and rub her eyes and yawn and nod to the sermons of the preaching men called something like Jabez Branderham. Men who would stifle and denounce her. Out, 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 you witch! You wench! You writer! Men who would keep her locked to her seat in that draughty chapel on the Yorkshire hills in Howarth, 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 where her own father was a preacher. And no doubt, and no doubt, Emily sat through many a dull sermon trying to find her way back to her words, her rhythms, her way of seeing, her way of breathing, her way of walking, up. And down the hills, alone, alone. Emily preferred to walk alone and take her dog, perhaps to escape the dull blows, 
because all writers are escaping from something. The blows of insignificance. The blows, I say, the blows, the blows upon the body which come from being hemmed in by dull minds. Auditing, 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 dull, dull rhythms. Can't you hear them? Can't you hear them? They're all around us, tracking our every move inside boxes, 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 like coffins, 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 squares, oblongs, narrow passageways leading nowhere except somewhere cold and barren and full of aching. Those carefully arranged pews in the small drafty chapel on the hill, neat, orderly, made of wood, designed to make your body do all the work of staying upright as you listen to the dull ache of your bones, trying to hold themselves alert, 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 to the deadening sound of a dullard, a bore, a bore, a bore. I am surrounded by them because nobody knows how to think anymore. Nobody knows how to imagine more, more. And so the blows come, the blows come as they do to poor Mr. Lockwood in his dreams. With that concluding words, the whole assembly exalting their pilgrim staves rushed me in a body and I, having no weapon to raise in self-defence, self-defence, I say, commenced grappling with Joseph, my nearest and most ferocious assailant, for us, for his, for his, Joseph, my nearest and most ferocious assailant. In the confluence of the multitude, several clubs crossed, blows aimed at me, fell on other sconces. Presently, presently the whole chapel resounded with rappings and counter-rappings. Every man's hand was against his neighbour. And Branderham, unwilling to remain idle, poured forth his zeal in a shower of loud taps. On the boards of the pulpit, which responded so smartly that at last, to my unspeakable relief, they woke me. They woke me. Thank you for listening to A Reading Life, A Writing Life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like it, give us a review, or mention us to friends or on social media.
Thank you. <laughs>